This is a crusade. This is a holy war against the deep state. Where are the dictators? Where are the strong men? Donald Trump is our instrument for retribution. I'm going to fight for Christians. I'm going to fight for white people. They have the Great Reset. We have the Great Awakening. And why shouldn't I root for Russia? Because Which I am. I want to see these people go through misery because of their grooming against our children. After the assailant entered the home asking, where's Nancy? Where's Nancy? Those are the very same words used by the mob when they stormed the United States Capitol. I did nothing wrong. Welcome to the Did Nothing Wrong podcast, where we cut through the noise and help you make sense of the chaotic information space around us. I'm Griff Somke. And I'm Jay McKenzie. Chris Mathias is a journalist who covers the far right for the Huffington Post. His work has covered the cutting edge of white nationalism and the MAGA movement. He's currently working on a new book entitled To Catch a Fascist, about the anti-fascist movement and the research that goes into exposing the fascists that walk among us. We're thrilled to have him with us today. Chris, thank you for joining us today. Welcome to Did Nothing Wrong. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, we really appreciate you. So tell us a little bit about your background, how you found yourself covering the radical right. Yeah, for sure. So um, I've been at a reporter at HuffPost for a very long time, for like over 10 years. And, you know, back in 2016, I was focusing almost solely on Islamophobia and also criminal justice stuff. But with the Islamophobia stuff, it kind of segued naturally into covering the broader far right. And in early 2017, well, I guess it was about June, um, I ended up back in my hometown, which is Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, you know, the Mm -hmm. site of the deadliest civil war battle. And there was a rally there for all these neo-Confederates and militiamen and uh, even some KKK guys uh, who had been drawn to the battlefield over a fake rumor online that Antifa was going to turn up and piss on Confederate graves. I remember this, yes. Which with a little bit of fact-checking, they would have realized that there are no marked Confederate graves in Gettysburg. (laughs) But at any rate, uh, I covered that. Um, A militiaman ended up uh, literally shooting himself in the foot during the course of that demonstration and Antifa never showed up. But, you know, a couple months later, um, you know, that, that little rally, probably a hundred people felt like a bit of a preview. And a couple months later I was in Charlottesville for Unite the Right. And I, I covered that. And I'm sure you guys have had people on the podcast before who were there, but I think anyone who was there kind of changed the trajectory of their lives and when I got back from covering United the Right, uh, my editor at the time, Lydia Polgreen, told me and my reporting partner, Andy Campbell, that uh, this was our beat now. So I've been covering the far right ever since. Jesus, is that like over six years? Yeah. 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 And so, yeah, a lot of the coverage, it's just kind of, you know, I've gone to a lot of demonstrations a lot of Trump rallies and a lot of my coverage is kind of focused on the intersection of the far right and, and people in power. So exposing extremists in the military or police departments or in the GOP and and so forth. Yeah. You've written a lot on this and it's great to have you here to explain some of it. Yeah. You mentioned the neo-Confederate rally and a fake rumor spreading and my, my thoughts jumped to, well, I bet the gateway pundit, picked this up and 
also that seems it was this 2016 or 2017 because i know this is a thing that happens a lot now where antifa is going to show up and the far right blows up this story was this one of the first instances that you remember of a, a like a fake antifa rally occurring yeah i think so i think it was um i'm pretty sure it was june 2017 and june or early july um i think it had something to do corresponded with the anniversary of the battle which is in early july but yeah i mean that was like you know i was still new to the beat and that was kind of my first time brushing up against rumors of antifa and also just kind of grappling with uh, what antifa is and isn't which has turned into a large part of my beat yeah that's it's fascinating and i know you've covered a lot of this stuff on the ground and actually been there and I'm sure that your experiences probably vary a lot with the commentary you see online. I'm, I'm sure that you understand this stuff from a perspective that a lot of people don't because they're not going there. Have, have you seen significant changes over the years in terms of people being more extreme or more more vocal and outward in their appearance? Has it been kind of a gradual thing or has that accelerated recently? Yeah, uh, great question. I think like it kind of comes in in waves. So like when I was, you know, in 2017, obviously that's when the alt right was like going mask off, like, and and that's like the significance of Charlottesville, right? It's like all these dudes who had been uh, hiding behind avatars and usernames for for years were were feeling emboldened enough by the rise of Trump that they felt that they could you know, invade a town without masks and, you know, maybe terrorize a town without consequence. And then, you know, in the months following Charlottesville there, you know, I covered a lot of other uh, demonstrations like Richard Spencer going to the University of Florida or going to Michigan State. I covered Milo going to Berkeley. Right. And the fallout from those demonstrations combined with I would argue a lot of anti-fascist work that went into infiltrating these groups and exposing their memberships um, is that, you know, the alt-right as we knew it in Charlottesville, like largely collapsed. And at one point, uh, you know, Richard Spencer even conceded that Antifa was winning. And then so like over the subsequent years, you kind of saw the development of different far-right formations, you know, you saw the rise of the Proud Boys and groups like Patriot Prayer, which were very active, especially in the Northwest. And I ended up covering some really crazy demonstrations in Portland. And then, you know, I think those kind of formations, you know, Proud Boys, Patriot Prayer, various militia groups, and the emergence of the Groypers, like Nick Fuentes' Groypers, you kind of saw that coalition at January 6th. Right. And then the same kind of thing happened after January 6th, right? Like after Charlottesville, it's where, you know, everyone that was involved, you know, they felt emboldened and they were encouraged to be there. Um, But then, you know, afterwards, there was a lot of work to ID everybody was there that was there and to ensure consequences. And then, of course, you know, what are we at now? Over a thousand prosecutions, probably. Yeah, right about that. Yeah. So I think like those movements after January 6th, like largely went to ground. And we've 
mostly been seeing them reemerge at the local level where they are, you know, doing their best to get elected into city councils, school boards, uh, where they're turning up at drag, you know, drag story hours and, and what have you. A lot of the extremism that I think we're, we're tracking right now is, is happening at the at the local level, which is, you know, just as scary as, uh, you know, not big national demonstrations. Um, and I think where we're at right now is, <laughs> I f- it kind of feels like everything's gearing up for next year. In a way, the far right almost feels stronger than it did like six years ago. And it's like, there's different formations of it now, but I think what the Richard Hanania story demonstrates especially is that there are some very powerful people, not only in the GOP and in politics, but in Silicon Valley who are heavily invested in the far right, but also are very explicit about not believing in democracy and, you know, who even talk about advocating monarchy um, and so on and so forth. These are people that are kind of, I think, shaping what the, whatever the far right will look like uh, next year as we head into an election. Right. And we're talking about Richard Hanania. He's now a somewhat, and I'm making big air quotes here, respectable academic figure who has the ear of people like Elon Musk and Tucker Carlson. And he managed to get himself a book blurb from Peter Thiel. However, he, like a lot of these people, has written a whole lot of racist things using a pseudonym. And you wrote this up quite extensively. Can you walk us through this investigation? Tell us how you connected the dots on this? Yeah, for sure. So Richard Hanania has kind of emerged as this kind of like eminent greaser, like court philosopher (laughs) for like Silicon Valley libertarians. Right. And at the time I did this investigation, he was a visiting scholar at the University of Texas. You know, he was delivering lectures to the Yale Federalist Society. Um, He's scheduled to give a lecture at Stanford this month. He you know, has written for the New York Times, for the Washington Post, for the Atlantic. J.D. Vance once cited him uh, as like an interesting thinker, um, like a, a year or two ago. He developed a really big following on Substack. He developed a really big following on Twitter. And the shit he was writing was like always pretty racist right? and, and libertarian. But I don't think what people appreciated was just how steeped in like extremist circles he was and basically you know i I had seen some murmurings online that years ago richard hanania um had used a pseudonym to write for supremacist websites so my investigation was just kind of a matter of tracking that rumor down and seeing if i could verify it and we found that we were able to connect his email addresses to a series of usernames on uh, white supremacist websites and found out that he had been using the pseudonym Richard Host to write for the most abhorrent publications in America, including, we were talking about Richard Spencer uh, a little bit earlier, but he, Richard Spencer tapped Richard Host, um, you know, in air quotes, to be one of the first writers for altright.com, which was like a pretty formative publication for what became the right, right. 
And then, you know, we compared a lot of stuff that Richard Hanani was saying these days about his own life to biographical information that Richard Host was uh, revealing in like 2008 to 2014, probably. And yeah, so we were able to connect the two and reveal that Richard Hanania was a not only a major voice in the alt-right and the white and white supremacist movements, but was advocating straight up eugenics um, and, you know, advocating sterilizing people beneath a lower, I, like a certain IQ, um, yeah. who he argued were, were most often black. And he dabbled in every type of bigotry. He was a ranked misogynist, an anti-Semite, anti-Muslim, you name it and was more or less advocating for the creation of um, a white-only ethnostate. Um, and now here he is, 10 years later, a visiting scholar at the University of Texas, writing op-eds in all of our the country's biggest papers. Wow. That just is amazing that the guy was able to fly under the radar like that until this came up, that here's this guy with this whole history of this terrible stuff that he's written, terrible positions on any number of things, and somehow he slides in as an intellectual. Just, wow. Well, this is a guy who's citing the Turner Diaries, which is about as dark and concerning and, and the potential for violence there is uh, we know that a lot of racist white supremacists cite the Turner Diaries and manifestos. And it's not shocking to me, but also... It still makes me question how we got to this point that even after all of this is revealed, I know that he's Hanania has suffered some consequences. I know Barry Weiss dropped him, but he's still got these speaking engagements. He's not, I haven't seen his articles taken down at New York Times or elsewhere. There's, he's still posting. Uh, so I don't even know if the funding has dried up. He's, he's really, he hasn't lost much here, has he? No, and I, and I think that's the most telling part of, of the story. So, like, I think someone joked after I published the um, article that they've never seen the phrase did not respond to a request for comment more in the story. <laughs> and and it's basically, you know, like HarperCollins just published his book <laughs> a couple weeks, a few weeks ago, a month after my story. And I, I had attempted to reach out to uh, HarperCollins multiple times basically being like you know you're about to publish a book by a guy that was you know more or less a, a nazi um a few years ago and and the book by the way was uh it's called the origins of woke um <laughs> and it's kind of a screen against against wokeness and very much in the in the model of like chris rufo or or what have you but University of Texas didn't respond to a request for comment. Stanford didn't respond to a request for comment. Wall Street Journal, Times, Washington Post, I don't believe, responded to a request for comment. Oh, man, what else? Oh, Substack, where <laughs> he really used to kind of catapult himself to some celebrity. Like the week before my story published, uh, this the like founder, I think, of Substack had uh, Richard Hanania on his podcast and for a very friendly conversation and then you know after my story published Richard Hanania published a substack acknowledging my story and admitting to having used the pseudonym on white supremacist websites and kind of like trying to do like a mea culpa and like apologize but when you actually read his substack 
it's to me i wouldn't <laughs> yeah i wouldn't call it um much of a, an apology did you guys read that oh yeah or, or yeah that? yeah 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 we yeah. were right on that kind of wondering he claims that he finds it repulsive but he doesn't yeah. really show any signs of finding it repulsive he hasn't really changed anything that he's been writing about his tone everything's about the same so what does he mean besides like uh, the most mealy-mouthed apology that you're likely to see on something like this yeah exactly and 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 also like you know saying it's repulsive in the same breath as he's acknowledged like very slyly like acknowledging that he still believes in race science mm -hmm. <laughs> wink wink repulsive yeah oh i should mention as well that i reached out to so i'm trying to remember all of the silicon valley billionaires that provided blurbs for his book or have otherwise um supported him but like you know i reached out to peter Thiel, um who provided a, a blurb for his book uh mark Andreessen, who has been on richard hanani's podcast a few times um vivek ramaswamy who's obviously running for president uh had richard hanania um on his podcast and none of these people uh replied to my request for comment or really acknowledged uh, the story whatsoever. I think, if anything, Mark Anderson did some tweets like defending Hanania. So, you know, when I was saying before that I think we're kind of enter entering like a new formation of the far right at the moment, I think something to really keep an eye on is kind of this uh, Silicon Valley space where it seems like a lot of very powerful people, including Elon Musk, who we haven't talked about yet, are very invested in someone like Richard Nania, whose politics are, I would argue, not that different from when he was using a pseudonym to write for the Occidental Observer or Vidare right. or all of these other uh, racist websites. And a few weeks after the story published, um, Richard Nania kind of continued to gloat uh, and brag on Twitter that he hadn't been canceled. And at one point, I think like he he like he tweeted that I was calling Harper Collins every day trying to get his book canceled, which I wasn't. Right. <laughs> and then Elon Musk responded to that tweet about me, um, saying something along the lines of "interesting, uh, you know, we'll read your book." So yeah, it's been a, a pretty pretty interesting uh, fallout from that story. Well, and it of course Elon replies to it and his 150 million followers how many ever of them are real will of course see Hanania's post and that boosts it and he knows what he's doing there but I, th I think even just looking at the scale of this you've got Peter Thiel the head of Palantir this big data company the founder of PayPal the I th believe he was a board member of Facebook. You've also Mark Andreessen, like you said, have gone on Hanania's podcast a few times. And this is a guy who's a mentor to Mark Zuckerberg. He was on the Facebook board. He's his VC has given tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars to all of these tech companies in Silicon Valley. And of course, these people look down on you and the blue checks and all of the power and influence that your words have. And these guys are, <laughs> I mean, this is the, there's a shadowy cabal. It's like, maybe you should start in Silicon Valley, but <laughs> it's just amazing that they're defending this and that he's got Hanania, as you mentioned the story, he's getting this 
this dark money into an institute that he's running out of his house and can't even trace where that's coming from. And these guys are still publicly putting their names on defenses or quasi defenses of him. But the dark money from where whatever source that that it's coming from, I think it's going to keep rolling in. It seems like it is because he's like you said, he's posting through it. He's he kind of just laughed it off. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the dark money part. I forgot that part, which is that he had this think tank nonprofit that was registered to his address in LA that was receiving hundreds of thousands of dollars, most of which he was using to pay himself. So he definitely has some rich benefactors. And, you know, since the story published, Hanani has hinted at the fact that he is in talks with other people, other funders and what have you, which is, it's, it's just so crazy. Like I, I'm trying to think like, if it just feels different than a few years ago, you know, like in 2020 during, I think during all the uprisings and discussion about anti-racism and systemic white supremacy, I feel like companies and figures, they would act more proactively not to be associated with someone like Kananya. Right. It mattered. It mattered a lot more. They were worried about yeah. it. Yeah, they were worried about public image and or, and what have you. But three years later, and they uh, they don't. Yeah, they don't. They don't care. And I, I don't. I don't really know the explanation for that. I you know I think you could maybe tie it to all of the the way certain buzzwords um, have changed the discourse over the last few years. You know, specifically phrases like critical race theory and wokeness and and the way like the anti-trans movement has picked up so much traction that it's made someone like Kanania all that much more palatable. But yeah, I think it's an alarming development. Yeah, definitely. They just don't seem to feel the need to even address this stuff anymore. As we've seen, it seems like they just, you know, post through it or donate through it or whatever we're calling it these days. And he just keeps on doing what he's doing. So yeah, I see where you're at with this being a truly terrifying place to be heading into 2024 when there's going to be a very consequential election or several about where we're really going in the future. It's going to be yeah, quite something. I think everyone listening to this probably remembers hearing about Richard Spencer and the, and the all right movement in 2016 and 2017. I mean, concerned by that and why is this gaining steam and why are these people so popular online and why are they getting so many likes and retweets and, and how big is this problem? And Hanania is really no different than Richard Spencer. He mm-hmm. posted on his website, as, as you mentioned, and that just seems like so long ago. Oh, that was, you know, it feels like that was decades ago or like lifetimes ago, but it was, it was six years yeah. and so much has changed. And it, I just look at it and wonder, was Richard Spencer's problem that he just was was out taking all the flack too early? Because here's this guy who's fundamentally no different. But Yeah, who worked with Richard Spencer. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think I have some reason to believe that like Richard Nania met with Richard Spencer at the GOP convention ahead of the twenty sixteen election. And so they were they were tight. Uh, you know, not tight, but they were, you know, in the same circles. Right. Um, and I think like what the Hanani story has kind of 
made me reconsider in some ways is that like, you know, I think there was this narrative after Charlottesville and I, I kind of, you know, spoke about that narrative earlier is that like, you know, the alt-right, the way it was formed in Charlottesville largely collapsed um, in the year or two after. And I think we kind of, there's a tendency to think of Charlottesville as kind of the peak of the alt-right. But I think like another way we maybe should start thinking about it is that like that was an introductory blow by the alt-right and where um, it, it made a lot of space for people like Richard and Narnia to be where they are now. So yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's definitely made me uh, rethink a lot of things. Definitely. So I also wanted to touch on this before we moved on from Hanania. It's, it's another bit that you mentioned in the article and you talked about Hanania praising the tech right. And, and we've talked about some of these guys, but he, he specifically praised David Sachs, who is a confidant of Elon Musk and Peter Thiel and Vivek Ramaswamy, the presidential candidate for the GOP. And Hanania specifically cited their support of transhumanism and long-termism. And we're talking about Hanania and his past and his focus on eugenics. And as you mentioned in the piece, this may not be the exact same thing, but it sure sounds real similar to some of these racial overtones and, and these really racist ideas that we saw with the eugenics movement. Yeah, I think so. I think if I'm perfectly honest, I'm not a tech reporter and I'm not all that familiar with Sachs and, and Anderson and and all these folks, but the story was quite an introduction to them. And um, you know, I had heard of long termism, which essentially is kind of this techno futurist idea that like prioritizes the health of like future generations of humans like thousands of years from now over people kind of living here and, and getting by in here and now and like when you peel it away what it is is it basically justifies a lot of rich guys making all the decisions <laughs> mm. it talks about altruism and charity and the need for that but you know it kind of is a society that's dependent on on the largesse of, of billionaires. So it's a very convenient philosophy for kind of Silicon Valley uh, rich guys. Um, uh, you know, some people that are much more involved in this stuff on me, involved like are familiar with long-termism, have essentially called it like eugenics by another name. Right. Or eugenics on, on steroids. So like they basically a lot of long-termism stuff is talking about creating like perfect humans in the future. So you, we should start shaping society accordingly and, you know, maybe breeding right. <laughs> uh, accordingly or, or what have you. And it has a lot of tie in with like restrictions on immigration or like forced sterilizations and stuff like that. So yeah, which of course Anania has written in favor of based mm -hmm. on potentially IQ tests or some other means that, that is meant to create the best humans. And it's it's really just not difficult to see how they can find common cause with this guy and, and also why something like the Great Replacement Theory would sound really appealing to these same people because it's it's basically the same thing. Yeah. This is a hop, skip, and a jump, if even that, from 
race science and eugenics, whether they're saying it in those terms or not. And it all ties together very, very neatly when you look at it. It's clear that this is just a nicer way to say it rather than yeah, you know, no, some I, new thing. Yeah, it's like it's putting it's putting lipstick on it. And mm-hmm. and I and I should have and I meant to emphasize earlier that like when Richard Hanania was writing under his pseudonym for white supremacist websites, one of he was the guy that wrote about eugenics. He was like the voice of of that uh topic um his he maintained his own blog called human biodiversity which is human biodiversity is just a oh yeah preferred euphemism or uh for for race science and, and for eugenics and yeah the, so the dude that was like advocating forcibly sterilizing black people and other non-white people is you know now has the years of all these long-termists. Yeah. Even even past 2024, however that comes out, we're still looking at some pretty negative stuff coming out here down the road. And yeah. these people have enough money to keep this going for quite some time and to push this agenda for you know as long as they want to. So definitely something to keep an eye on going forwards. So you wrote... A little about Tucker Carlson as well, former Fox News star turned white nationalist Twitter streamer, and all the conspiracy theories that he <laughs> brought into American living rooms and how this is going to outlast his legacy. Were you as surprised as we were that Fox decided to let him go? Yeah, yeah, I thought he was going to be um, be there for, for forever. Um, I mean, I guess um, it got. Uh, eventually it just became so untenable that mm-hmm. they couldn't keep him there. But um, to be honest, like I haven't kept that much up with him since he mm-hmm. left. Have you guys like watched his live stream? Watched a couple of them. I watched the one with, I watched the one with ice cube. That was kind of interesting. Yeah. And- I've, I've, I've read the synopsis from eyes on the right. Um, and he's, he's watched every single one of them and thankfully has, picked out the highlights for us but yeah it's God, it's uh some of the recent yes he is <sighs> poor guy, poor <laughs> yes, guy. <laughs> yes yeah he had bill o'reilly on recently which oh yeah he still exists but, <laughs> uh, you've got the tate brothers i mean there's so many white men that have been accused of rape or sexual assault and tucker's yeah come on down uh-huh yeah yeah it's also, I mean, it's, it, it does occur to me too. Like, I mean, obviously like Tucker is still going to be a very prominent figure and, you know, probably one day we'll run for office and I'm sorry to speak that into existence right now, but it does occur to me. Like there's a lot of conversations all the times about like deplatforming and does it work or not. And like, to a certain degree, like I feel like the Carlson story and like him not having his nightly primetime slot, like he's just not as much in the discourse as he was. Did you guys agree with that? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think, um, I think personally that when you can take somebody like a Tucker Carlson, somebody with that size platform off of the vast majority of TVs that are going to be watching him, that's a good thing. Unequivocally. That's a good thing because number one, his fan base is going to have a much harder time finding him wherever he ends up. Uh, number two, whatever they replace him with is not going to be as loved. And it's going to take a while for that to get traction, especially when you're doing it in a really rushed 
manner like they did because it's not like they had some plan to hand that off. It seemed like he just got fired over the weekend. They tried a couple of replacement hosts and then they end up going with Jesse Waters. And it's just like not this thing that is really catching on. Fox lost almost half their viewership, it seemed like, for a while over this. So... Well, and I and I think part of the way that that Tucker got mainstreamed is that people are just watching him by default. I'm in Tennessee, and a lot of people here just leave Fox News on all day. And if it's on Fox, a lot of right leaning people are just going to watch it and think this is normal. This mm-hmm. is the normal discourse. This is politics. This is the discussion we have to have. And Tucker appeared that way he appeared to just be another fox host but here are these neo-nazi talking points that are getting filtered into the discussion every night and he's got some staffers multiple staffers got outed for their ties to white supremacists or or far-right figures and websites so yeah i think i think taking that away is a good thing but also, I don't. For whatever reason, Tucker is so desperate to not be forgotten and to be part of the conversation that now he's just like willing to talk to anyone about anything if it keeps eyeballs on him. Yeah, it's like Alex Jones, basically, and, and like he has a relationship with Alex Jones too. That uh-huh. we, we all know now. And also, I should have mentioned earlier that Richard Hanania appeared on Tucker Carlson like twice, and. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if they are in touch. I know, like, uh, have you guys talked about Darren Beatty on here before? Oh, yes. Darren Beatty's aware of us. He's he's yeah. a fan. He loves our show. Okay. Darren Beatty is just a big fan of this podcast. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. And so we know that Darren Beatty, that Tucker is a fan of Darren Beatty. Um, it seems like Darren Beatty and Richard Anania are pretty tight. So in a way, it's like a small circle of people that are, um, kind of working together yeah. at the moment. And it seems also that, um, you know, you're sp- speaking of Alex Jones, guys will stay, anything to stay relevant. Saw he did a call out a couple days ago of Nick Fuentes saying he wanted to have him on and yell at him, tell him how wrong he is about all of this stuff. And Fuentes on October 22nd responds on his own Telegram channel that he'll be debating Alex Jones about the Gaza war in studio this week. So Jesus Christ, dude. Yeah. We have that to look forward to. Oh, God. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's terrible. Yeah, it's so terrible. It's it's going to get, yeah, it's just going to keep getting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I feel like it's it's been, it's been bad for a while, but I feel like it's going to keep getting worse as we, especially with everything that's happening in Gaza right now. And as we head into the election next year, it's just going to. Oh, yeah. There is not a more difficult topic and, and. There's not one with more emotion attached to it than Israel and Palestine. And this flare up and war in Gaza is exactly what we did not need. And it's just supercharged some of the worst instincts of, of people, especially on Twitter. It's terrible right now. Yeah. And, and I think like um, a lot of, you know, people we uh, that you guys obviously discussed on the show and that um, that we've been talking about today see an opportunity in, in discourses like this to find new followers and, and fans. So, and especially with how much Twitter is degraded right now Ugh. to the point where 
it's hard to tell what's real and what's not. Like, I feel like there's been some moments already in the news cycle showing how bad Twitter is as a, a news platform, but holy shit, man, like during the last couple of weeks during the Gaza stuff, it's just been unusable. Yeah. Terrible. Yeah. And it's just, you, you see so many people, you know, smart people even like sharing and, and, and retweeting, uh, stuff that is wrong right and we've seen professional fact checkers like cheyenne over at bbc verify people just throwing up their hands and being like we can't keep up with this there is just this absolute torrent of bullshit right now we've got video after video from 2012 in syria that's come out and being passed off as current footage from palestine it's just you never really knew how good you had it until it's gone kind of thing like i mean we all we all called twitter a hell site it was but I didn't appreciate what guardrails it, it actually had in, in, until now. Yeah. The whole levels of hell thing was sadly misunderstood because you know, <laughs> we were on like maybe one or two and yeah. now we're dropping real fast yeah. here. No, it's, it's true. And uh, yeah, it just seems like on the right, particularly the, uh, the racism got dialed up to 10 again, but it's, it's like all that latent, Islamophobia and and hatred of Muslims that they hadn't really been that concerned with for a while. They've been much more focused on trans people and LGBTQ rights. And now all those same people have suddenly pivoted to, oh, yeah, remember how much you you are supposed to hate Muslims? And it's not great seeing that come back. No. You know, like I said earlier, like I kind of got started covering the far right by covering Islamophobia and it's been interesting over the years, like some of the major figures in like the anti-Muslim scene, like people like Robert Spencer, not to be confused with Richard Spencer, Robert Spencer, Pamela Geller, hmm. Frank Gaffney, all those folks have been, you know, largely irrelevant for years, but I kind of started seeing them creep up on my timeline again in the past couple of weeks and just kind of goes to show that the right the far right, but the right more generally too, um, was is always finding an opportunity to exploit the way to scapegoat, basically. Right. So you mentioned that you're working on a book and the title is To Catch a Fascist. Can you talk a little bit about that? Where are we going with this? Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, thanks so much for asking. Yeah, so I'm on, I'm on book leave right now. And basically, the book is called To Catch Fascist, and it's basically a book about Antifa and, and about anti-fascist researchers. Over the last seven or so years, there's been groups of anti-fascists that have either infiltrated uh, far-right groups uh, online or IRL um, in person, or uh, have otherwise done research to expose the members of, of multiple groups. And so, you know, for example, I'm I'm working with a a spreadsheet right now of some 1200 people that have been exposed over the last five or seven years by anti-fascists. And so the idea for the book is to explore some of these stories. So like what happens when a, a town finds out that their local police officer or pastor or city councilman um, is posting Nazi memes on telegram and like how communities respond and or don't respond Right, but I'm also ho- hoping that the book can get into um, what Antifa is and, and isn't, and talk about how the right kind of manufactured this Antifa boogeyman uh, right. over the last years. Because you know, prior to 2017, uh, Antifa wasn't a, a household name, 
And now I, I would argue that it is. And, and actually in 2017, I believe Merriam-Webster named it as one of its words of the year. You know, and we've had some kind of Antifa panics over the last years where the GOP was obsessed with it. Um, and a lot of its messaging was about Antifa. If you were at CPAC, everyone was talking about Antifa. Mm -hmm. Trump was, you know, wanted to declare it a terrorist organization. In 2020, you had all these viral rumors about Antifa. Like, oh, yes. Do you guys remember the one? It was like busloads of Antifa were going to come to this town in northern Idaho and, and take it over. Well, and that's the funny part is that that was everywhere. It wasn't just one town in northern Idaho. It was like yeah, yeah. practically every town, every section of... I'm from Washington State. I live in the west side, Seattle area. And oh, nice. Yeah, sure. they, there were every small town out on the Olympic Peninsula, every small town like out towards the like Port Angeles and, you know, Forks areas like that. There were supposedly flyers that were circulating that people were taking very seriously that there was going to be an Antifa takeover. It was everywhere. It was like basically the same flyer copy pasted from, I think it started at least in some gun forum, maybe the AR15.com forums mm -hmm. that, seems to have made its way to practically everybody. So yeah, what's fascinating to me about this whole thing is that in 2017, there was a petition that was submitted to the White House for Donald Trump to declare Antifa a terrorist organization. And the guy that wrote that petition is a guy who just recently testified against Douglas Mackey in his election interference trial. He goes by the name of Microchip. Same guy. Yeah, of course. I I forgot that was fucking Microchip. I'm so glad you reminded me of that. It was fucking Microchip. And his quote to Politico about this was, it was to bring our broken right side together after Charlottesville and prop up Antifa as a punching bag. And... What else needs to be said, really? Dude, see, I'm so glad we're talking because that's I, I need that for the book. <laughs> um, <laughs> glad we could help. But, yeah, but but he 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 really spelled it out there, didn't he? He did. Yeah. And that guy always has essentially spelled it out. He's still spelling it out under his current alt, and he's spelling it out what he plans on doing about all of this stuff. And it's amazing to watch the somewhat less than credulous media keep taking the bait. And saying, "Oh well, maybe there's actually something to this." Yeah, I'm so I I'm so glad you brought that up. It reminds me of like Chris Rufo like spelling out explicitly that like critical race theory and other terms are just like like he's very explicit oh, about yeah. why he's using those terms. It's to unify the right and have like a punching bag, like Microchip said about Antifa. And it's very effective, and it puts a name on things that people couldn't explain before and they don't even necessarily have to know what it means nope. but it's just a thing they all agree they're going to say now and that's crt that's antifa yeah exactly quote so the narrative changed from i hate myself because we have neo-nazis on our side to i really hate antifa let's get along and tackle the terrorists he explained <laughs> i mean that, that that's a microchip quote yeah it's a microchip quote i'll send you the article yeah god i mean it was it was fucking effective it really worked i think yeah, I mean, and it's also, I think, when you look back at it now, the people that the right was calling Antifa, like, their definition of Antifa just basically became all-encompassing. Um, you know, mm -hmm. I'm certainly Antifa to them. Um, I'm sure you guys would be considered Antifa, too. Um, oh, absolutely, we are. But they would call, like, Democratic lawmakers uh, Antifa, which, like, if you actually talk to, like, a militant anti-fascist, 
that is just so like you know counter <laughs> to everything that they believe in and to what Antifa actually is. Well, they're kind of telling on themselves when they say that these people are Antifa because like one working definition is anybody who is anti-fascist. And if you're accusing all these people who work against you of being Antifa, then what are you? Yeah, yeah exactly. It's it's not, yeah, it's not very reflective on their part. No, it, it gets into the absurd when I see them call Bill Crystal or, you know, somebody, a rhino uh, <laughs> yeah. is Antifa. And it's it's so divorced from reality. But hey, they make their own reality. Yeah, exactly. And for the part of the book, when I get into the kind of panic of like the panic or the boogeyman about Antifa, I have two books that I'm going to read. Um, one is by Jack Posobiec and the other is by Andy No, <laughs> which are their opuses about uh, Antifa. So I'll, I'll, I'll come back and let you guys know how those books are. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so how do you stay sane? How do you stay sane and grounded while working on this stuff? We're always looking for suggestions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you guys figure it out, let me know. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's funny. Like I think I've been doing this for a while now, so it just kind of feels like a, just a part of my life at this point. But I think, you know, I think uh, a big part of it is, is, you know, talking to folks like you and, other people that keep other people in kind of the right watching community. Um, and right. especially, you know, a lot of collaboration with other reporters on the beat who you can talk to about this stuff and who are fluent in, in these worlds and uh, will make you feel a little less crazy. And then, you know, part of it too is doing the work and, and sometimes seeing impact. And then finally, I really enjoy alcohol. <laughs> i'm also like in i'm in like the throes of book writing right now so i've um chain smoking again which i'll have to quit at some point but <laughs> oh man <laughs> well stay safe and stay sane uh yeah you're disconnecting a little bit but also diving deeper into certain aspects which it's kind of good and bad mm -hmm. right yeah, yeah, it's it's. I will say it's 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 good to be off the, off the timeline uh, as much um, and kind of focusing on specific stories. But I'll be back on the timeline in January or so. So, how do people support you and your work? Buy the book when it comes out. Definitely, this sounds like it's going to be a banger. Thanks, thanks. Um, yeah. Uh, so, you can follow me on Twitter or X, whatever it's called, as long as it's still around. Uh, I'm at Let's Go Matthias. <laughs> Uh, I'm also on Blue Sky now, which uh, seems to be a much nicer place. Uh, also at Let's Go Matthias. Um, otherwise, you can see my byline again at, at HuffPost when I'm back in, in January. But yeah, whenever I write this book and get it out there, which seems like it's going to be a lot of work, but uh, whenever it's available available for pre-order, I would love for you guys to, to pre-order it and to come back on this show and, and promote it. <laughs> no problem. We'll definitely have you back. Yeah, that'd be great. Let's plan on it. Cool. All right, sweet. Um, All right, well, thanks so much for having me, guys. Thank you, Chris. We really appreciate your time today. You have a great rest of your day. Good luck with the writing, and we'll talk to you again soon. All right, thanks, guys. You too. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Did Nothing Wrong podcast. If you want to hear more, you can find us on the web at didnothingwrongpod.com. Please make sure you subscribe to get our content straight into your inbox. You can also follow us on Twitter at James, the word for, and the letter M, all one word, and Grizza BJJ, G-R-Z-A-B-J-J, as well as DNW Pod. 
We're extremely grateful for paid subscriptions and donations that allow us to keep doing this important work. Thanks, and remember, everyone mentioned did nothing wrong.